A couple of weeks ago, I went to spend the day with my dad and stepmother in Sheffield. My dad has Alzheimer's disease, so his memory often fails him. Now, I knew that my dad had kept the collection of letters that his dad sent to him whilst he was away for months and months at a time serving in the Navy on various minesweepers in the Arctic Ocean throughout the Second World War. Now, my granddad, George, went off to war when my dad, Trevor, was seven and a half years old. And the war finished when my dad was about 13 and a half. Now, my little boy, Nathaniel, is nine and a half years old, and he's studying the Second World War at school. And I wanted to copy some of these letters for Nathaniel to take to school for his teacher to use to help the children to catch a glimpse of what it was like to be a child separated from his father at a time when communication was much more difficult than it is these days. Now, one of the first letters was sent on the 10th of January, 1940, in response to a letter that my dad had sent, aged seven and a half, on the 1st of December, 1939. So my dad sent his letter on the 1st of December, 1939, and his dad was writing his reply on the 10th of January, some six weeks later. Now, sadly, my dad doesn't have any of the letters that he sent to my granddad, but there are clues in the letters about what my dad had said to his dad in those letters. Granddad always addressed his letters to my sonny boy. It never says Trevor. My sonny boy. He says, I see that you started your letter on the 27th of November and finished it on the 30th of November. It can take quite a long time for a seven and a half year old to write a proper letter. I must say, Grandad continues, it is very neat writing indeed. Well done. Then a few lines later, he comments, no, I see you finished it on the 1st of December after you'd been to see Father Christmas. I imagine Grandad was writing his reply even as he was reading my dad's letter. He goes on. From what you say, you didn't ask Father Christmas for very much. I wonder if Father Christmas might give you an extra present because you have not been greedy. I look forward to your next letter telling me what Christmas presents you've had. Remember, this letter was written on the 10th of January. He's hoping for news about Christmas that would have happened about two and a half weeks before that. Such a long time to wait for an answer to a question if my dad had asked a question. Another letter says how proud Grandad was to hear about the goal my dad had scored for his school's football team. He says even if it was from a peculiar angle. So my dad must have described the goal in some minute detail which is not uncommon for my dad. But because we don't have my dad's letter It's a bit like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. What a privilege it was to take a peep into the past and read about the agony of separation 
from the emotion and the hints contained in those letters. Letters sent on birthdays each and every year, offering hopeful prayers that they would be able to celebrate my dad's birthday together the next year, or at Christmas with the same hopeful prayer. My dad and I spent an emotional time reading those letters and it stirred memories for him and gave us such a rich pool from which to draw our conversations, which aren't always easy these days. And what a privilege it's been so far and still is to be able to read a personal letter from Paul to Timothy, to take a glimpse into their relationship and look at the clues in the letters from which we try to imagine, like my dad and I two weeks ago, what questions and problems it was that Timothy had raised in his letters to Paul. Again, it's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation and making an educated guess at the questions and angst that Paul is addressing in his letters from the clues that are there. I just love verse 4. Paul writes, Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. Now we don't know whether, whether Timothy's tears were tears of sadness or joy, but Paul remembers them and is longing to see Timothy because Timothy is able to fill Paul with joy. It's a mutual relationship that brings benefits to both of them. Paul is confident that Timothy has lived well and has guarded the treasure of the gospel. Now in the Bibles that you have in front of you, the words used in verse 14 are a good deposit. But my NRSV Bible, which is the one that I use most at home and at college, says, guard the good treasure entrusted to you, which I rather like. And that's the phrase that I'm going to use to help us to explore this chapter. Paul wants to ensure that people in generations to come will hear the same gospel and live in the same way as true disciples of Christ. But it seems that Timothy, the recipient of the letter, did not share Paul's optimism about his abilities He isn't so confident about his capacity to guard the good treasure of the gospel. So Paul reminds him and reassures him in the early part of the letter. First of all, Paul reminds Timothy that he comes from good stock. He has two good gifts in the faithful women in his life, women in whom the Spirit lived, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. I love it when it mentions names. It brings the characters to life and the story to life with real people, real proper fleshed out people. How very personal this letter is, but how relevant its content is to Christian communities as well as to an individual. Secondly, Paul reminds Timothy about the gift that God has given him, a gift that Paul would have nurtured and seen grow. So Paul urges Timothy to fan the gift into flame. The third thing that comes with the gift of the treasure of the gospel is the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
God's power to overcome fear and reticence. The letter seems to suggest that at a time when it seems that many people are losing heart, Paul needs Timothy to be particularly strong. If you read on into verse 15 and, to the, and then again at the end in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, you'll see the names of those who are being diver, diverted away from the truth of the gospel. So Paul asks Timothy to guard the essentials of the gospel, the vitally important things that we must not lose sight of and be distracted from by others claiming a different message. And Paul gives us some clues as to what these essentials are in this letter to Timothy. He reminds his young apprentice about the content of the treasure he has been asked to guard. Even as early as verse 1, Paul slips in a mention of the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. But if you've still got your Bibles open... In verse 9 and 10, you'll see that Paul talks about the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus, Jesus' death destroyed death. This is a pretty good summary of the gospel. There is nothing that we can do to deserve eternal life, because it, because it is a gift of God's grace available through faith and not works, as the Jews understood works, that is, sticking to the absolute letter of the law no matter what. The gift of God, the treasure that is the gospel, is God's grace and the promise of eternal life. Someone once described quite well, I thought, the difference between grace and mercy. Now, if John, just by way of example, was to throw a brick through my window, I'm, not sh I'm sure you wouldn't, but let's just imagine that you did. If you were to throw a brick through my window, the merciful thing for me to do would be to hear his apology and then repair the window myself and let him off the hook. He, he was just being a bit silly at the time. It's okay, it's fine. Grace, however, is this. John throws a brick through my window. I hear his apology and I decide to repair the window myself. I let John off the hook. And then I invite him to share with me the most extravagant meal he has ever eaten. That's grace. To mess up and yet through faith and in spite of my imperfections and downright failings, I am invited, undeserving though I am, to enjoy an everlasting banquet through the most astonishing, loving grace of God. Now that's the gospel. 
That's the good news. And the even better news for the world is that all are invited to share the banquet. If only they knew it was on offer. And that's the thing with the treasure of the gospel. It's not a treasure to be squirreled away and hidden for safekeeping in a chest or a safe. It's not ours to keep. Nor is it only to be used for special occasions like a precious jewel. It's for everyday use. And it's a treasure we must be prepared to pass on to others, to share liberally and willingly. And what's more, the more we let it show and give it away and spread it around to others, friend and foe, the more the treasure grows in ourselves. And Jesus clashed with the Pharisees over exactly this point. The Pharisees thought that being God's people was a privilege that they alone possessed, a privilege denied to other peoples of the world. They guarded the treasure fiercely. In some respects, they were like the character of Gollum in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings books and films. Gollum's life was focused on possession of the ring, his precious. And if Nathaniel was here, he would do an impersonation of Gollum for you. But I, <laughs> but I can't. He wanted to possess his precious so much so that it was to his own disadvantage. He lived a tortured and obsessed life that was no life at all. Jesus came to show us a different way, a way that embraced, forgave, healed and called all sorts of misfits to join him, a motley crew. Jesus showed that the treasure of the gospel was a task and not a possession the task being to take the good news to others. Paul modelled himself on Christ. He urged Timothy to do the same, and we too are to do likewise. Many years ago, I discovered a little gem of a quote written by the French Catholic priest Michel Coist, now, some of you have probably heard of him. He was a poet, a writer, and a theologian. And he wrote his most famous book called Prayers of Life in 1954. His later book, With Open Heart, contains these beautiful and challenging words. If you knew a place where the world's biggest treasure was buried, if you knew that anyone who knew the way could go and help himself to it. And if you also knew that the treasure was life and constant love and joy, could you possibly keep it all a secret? Let me say that again. If you knew a place where the world's biggest treasure was buried, if you knew that anyone who knew the way, could go and help himself to it. And if you also knew that the treasure was life and constant love and joy, could you possibly keep it all a secret? What lovely words. Who wouldn't want to share that treasure? But the reality is rarely as simple and straightforward as those words suggest. 
the the holy calling that Paul refers to is a difficult one. Whenever Paul talks about his calling to be a herald, apostle and teacher, he talks about the suffering that comes with it because the reality is that the task is not always easy. Our words can fall on deaf ears at best and hostility at worst. As Paul knew to his cost, suffering in prison even as he wrote, because of the hostility that he faced on account of a radical gospel that embraced male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, East and West. But share the treasure of the gospel we must. Someone what recently described Christians as needing to be living sacraments, meant for sharing, like the bread and wine we share at communion. Unless we both receive God's gracious gifts from God and share ourselves, give ourselves even to others, we become like stale bread and vinegar. Like Timothy, to be effective, we need to fan into flame the gifts of God that are in us. Now, there's a new song that's been released recently. It's probably in the charts by now, for all I know. But um, it's by a singer called James Blunt. And the song is called Bonfire Heart. And the chorus has this line. You light the spark in my bonfire heart. Jesus is the one who starts the fire in my bonfire heart, bringing me closer to God so that like the travelers on the road to Emmaus that we can read about in Luke's gospel, I feel my heart burning within me as I talk to Jesus on the road, as I read and hear the scriptures which give me strength and courage to use the gifts that God has given me, as long as I ensure that I spend time with God, building up those gifts and listening to his word to me. Listening, sorry, listening for his word to me. I have inherited the treasure of the gospel from those who have gone before me. And like Paul, I want to handle the precious gem of the gospel correctly and pass it on to a world that still needs to hear good news. And maybe you do too, remembering that we are not expected to do it alone. Paul promised Timothy that the Holy Spirit would help him, and the same promise holds true for us. Remember that gospel means good news. And what is good news for you and I will be good news for others too. So in a time of quiet and before we continue to worship, I'd like you to take a moment to consider what is the treasure of the gospel for you? What is the good news for you? What is the message from scripture that sustains you in good times and bad? And how might you share that with others?